Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Philip Chubb. Philip Chubb runs a popular Instagram channel called The Mindful Mover, and he's had quite an interesting journey in the movement world, um, but now he specializes in teaching people strength development using gymnastic strength and barbells primarily, and he is highly influenced by the ideas of high intensity training and applying those to this sphere, as well as the ideas of Nassim Taleb. If you remember my interviews with Eric Lynn, Eric and uh, Philip are collaborators around a lot of the ideas that they work on. And this is a really fun interview. Philip and I have a great dynamic. I just really enjoyed talking to Phil. And I think that he has a lot of interesting things to say that can help you improve your practice and get more out of it for less time invested, which I think is critical, especially as we grow a little bit older. So I've used a lot of the ideas that Eric and Philip are offering here on how we can be more efficient in the use of our time and our training and get more out of each set and each rep. Um, and I think this is, you know, just a fantastic idea. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of hearing from Phil. So without any further ado, Philip Chubb. Have fun, guys. I'll do. Good to see you, Martina. Yeah, great to see you. Likewise. Okay, Philip, it's good to see you, man. I think it's been like four years since we actually chatted. <laughs> it's been that long already. Yeah, things have changed quite a bit for, for both of us, but I think I think your philosophy around training has has shifted maybe more than mine has, right? Tiny bit, right? A little bit. <laughs> so the first question I wanted to ask you is actually mindful mover right that's the name yeah. you go by on on uh on the gram mm -hmm. that's, that's where your fame is and uh and i was just curious what mindfulness means to you in that context I don't, you talk a lot about the training aspect of what you do but where does the mindfulness come in so it's funny so a lot of people uh talk about how we use accommodating resistance which is basically as you're doing a repetition of an exercise you're trying to make sure that you load the entire range of motion maximally. So for example, let's say I am doing a progression for the one arm stand. I'm reaching up and I'm grabbing the ring and I'm holding onto a strap with the other hand. And I'm pulling myself up with as much weight on this arm, the working arm as possible. And the other hand is helping as little as possible. And I'm going up to the top and then I'm trying to leave as little help as possible as I lower down. Now, it's funny because people will say, like, well, how do you measure if you're doing better at that lift? And I would say, well, that's where the mindful part is. You got to think about it and make sure that each rep you're doing, it's actually being accommodated resistance, using accommodated resistance properly on every movement that you do, every rep you do, et cetera, et cetera. So was that where you, where you began to use the term mindful for mindful mover or? 
We used it to basically talk about, so there's a funny story. I was at a seminar and we were doing uh, basically an ankle drill and I was moving my ankle up and down, going through the reps kind of uh, like mindlessly. Okay. <laughs> and the teacher there uh, was like, you're being a stupid mover. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea who you're talking about. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, hmm. So we kind of made it afterwards. We're like, okay, we're going to keep our, our brains in this stuff. And so that's what came up in the name, Mindful Mover, keeping the track of what you're doing, thinking about what you're doing, putting some intention behind it, as opposed to just going through the, the, the motions and being a, a stupid mover. So this kind of ends up being really at the heart of what you're advocating, is that mm -hmm. essentially um, we need to be skeptics much more in our approach to physical culture. Absolutely. So let's talk about your journey a little bit. Like how did you become the, uh, the minimalist training guru that you are? Um, I remember, I remember, uh, uh, a Facebook thread from you and Martina five years ago or whatever, talking about how you guys were not going to have kids, not going to do all these things in life because you had to dedicate yourselves to being the full-time movers that the world needed full-time movers. You had to train for eight hours a day for the rest of your life. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So now, now everything you post on Facebook is I refuse to train for more than an hour a week. <laughs> Break down the evolution for me a little bit. Oh, I love that. I, I love that. Everybody's over there laughing over there too. It's funny because like um I've been going back, like I go on Facebook every day and I press the memories button. I'm seeing like what comes up and then I'm like, okay, delete that post, delete that post, delete that post. I'm pretty sure I deleted the one where I was like, I'm never gonna have kids yeah. ever again. Yeah. Like, I would never say that. I ever. now, 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 exactly. <laughs> we have to go back and delete them. <laughs> um, so obviously when I first started off, uh, I was really into like the hard work culture, like working a lot, doing all the work. And while we were, um, more involved in the movement culture before we got banned, we were probably at, at the height of that. So it was like eight hours a day of training. And if you weren't going to sleep totally destroyed, then you just didn't train hard enough that day, you know? You should have to train really hard. You should need a nap and need coffee to wake up. And if you don't, then you're just not training hard enough. You're not doing enough, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that worked for a while in terms of um, not thinking about it. But we started talking to um, one of my friends. His name was is Eric. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he was on the show. And uh, uh as I talked more and more to, with him, we gradually became more and more minimalist as we were able to start thinking a bit better about what we were doing. So one of the things, for example, he was talking about is if we're going to have like a, like a really good solid foundation for our business, it would be, you know, a good thing to use would be a good measure would be using time versus the range of gains that we make while we train. So for example, if you're working out for an hour a week, how many exercises are you gaining on in that hour? And then while you're doing that, can you make the hour time come down? And can you make the range of gains go up? And I'm 
that's what we're playing with our big five is to see how we can make that time aspect come downward while the games aspect, how many exercises we're gaining on goes up in the same time or less time. So I know Eric, and I know that his, his primary passion is actually finance. Mm -hmm. And what pops into my head is that this is essentially like a return on investment model, mm -hmm. right? Um, you're trying to minimize your costs while maximizing the benefits of an investment. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me as actually kind of strange that that's not that that model that comes from the finance world isn't not is not more widely adopted in fitness. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I, is it just me, or do you get the impression that like people don't ask that question? I I notice that it's really interesting. So I I go on Reddit. I have an account there. I have to go in the bodyweight fitness Reddit, and like the base amount of training. Everyone trains like everyone starts off with three times a week full body. And it's kind of interesting because, just like you said, nobody starts off with like, let's see if once a week works and see how far that takes us. Let's see how twice a week works and see how far that takes us. It's like three times a week, right away, three sets every day, uh, each of the movements, without ever really testing to see if possibly less might get the gains too. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing it was based off a study. I think there was a study that showed that, that muscle uh, gains happen best with three times a week or something like that. And I think that's where it came from, like that whole idea. But you know how those studies go. Yeah, there. I mean, there's studies on that. Uh, I think one thing that personally, there's this whole idea of evidence-based fitness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and the idea is that uh, basically, as much as possible, your what you do with athletes and what you do with yourself should be based on evidence that you can get from scientific literature. And obviously scientific literature is an incredibly powerful tool, but I think that a lot of people go to these studies and they don't actually have any, they don't have any um, background in how to, how to um, examine scientific research and actually know if they're getting a high quality signal or not. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so these things get, get propagated as evidence-based but people don't really ask how good the evidence is. Yes. So I'm curious, I know that you, uh, you also are, are very skeptical of some of the, the models that are based off of, we know scientifically this works, um, or the claim that this works. Like for instance, I'm pretty sure that five by five, which is one of the most popular things, was literally just invented because it sounded good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah, five by five. That sounds great, right? <laughs> you know, there have been studies that show that 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 hypertrophy, for instance, is increased with volume. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but if you look at it, it's like, uh, you know, if you compare it, like, like a lot of what you guys do reminds me of Mike Menser and yes, uh, yes, uh -huh. HIT training, right? I love that guy. Yeah. So if you look at 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 his proposal about time under tension versus a study that showed that three sets got more gains than one set, they're not comparable. No. Because the way that the sets are performed are completely different. The amount yeah. of time under tension could be the same for three sets as for one set. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, just curious for, to hear your, your, your breakdown of, of how you use the evidence and where you see it as, as breaking down and kind of what is your your heuristic set for how to kind of navigate yourself through that so yeah exactly just like you said it's like you can't really 
equate the things. So I also, some people will say, say, oh, there's a study here that shows, you know, three times a week is optimal at this volume. And I say, well, first of all, how do we calculate the volume? Because in our method, we're using a common resistance. So, you know, if you're doing a normal chin-up and you're using 100 pounds of load on every rep, and the rep is done with 100 pounds up, 100 pounds down, that's the load the entire time. We can calculate that pretty easily. Now compare that to something like a one-arm chin-up progression where you're using a combating resistance and you're going up with you know various levels of loads. So down here you might be using a, a hundred, up here you might be using 125, here you might be using you know 135, but then on the way down you're using even more load since you're stronger eccentrically. And now you're lowering down with like, you know, maybe 150 here and here, maybe 160, et cetera, et cetera. So we can't really know what the load is to do a nice objective test against these things. So instead, what we go for is, okay, how long will this training take us to do? And then what will we gain on for this training? And it's kind of hard to tell what method will be better. Like if we want to do something like muscle mass, uh, it's hard to tell if three times will be better with a normal rep scheme and normal reps compared to once a week, but done with a common resistance. And, like, and then when you factor in different people doing it, like one person might do better on this one, might, one person might be do better on that one. And then later in their training careers, it might swap over and they might do better on other sides. It's just so hard to know all those different factors at the same time. So we go on what we can basically tell objectively, which is the time and the range of gains. Mm -hmm. So, um, oh, where was I? I got, I got a little distracted there. Oh, that's okay. I'm thinking about too many different things. <laughs> so you use accommodating resistance. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the questions that I have about this is, to me, I, I've been using a lot of these ideas that you and Eric have shared, right? Uh, it's very efficient for me as a, someone who wants to train a lot of parkour and doesn't want to spend a lot of time in the gym. Um, now, as you mentioned, there's a difference between, say, hypertrophy and strength development. If we're looking at you know, there's kind of three ways that we could look at the development of the skill. One is general neural characteristics. One is sort of, well, I guess we could look at general physiological characteristics and local physiological characteristics. And then we could also look at strength as a skill. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you're familiar with like Pavel Satsolin and his, his ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So you have something like, uh, like grease the groove or easy strength where you're doing extremely low intensity at mm -hmm. very high volume and high frequency or low volume, low intensity and high frequency. So you're practicing the skill. So what you're getting is a, a skill-based uh, improvement in your ability to do that, which then unlocks strength gains. Mm -hmm. How do you see the balance between these things, right? You, you know, one thing that I worry about in going just this accommodating resistance route is, uh, can I basically build the ability to create so much neural drive without having local uh, tissue adaptions that are gonna keep me surviving the type of stuff that I wanna do. Mm. So I've been thinking about that and uh, I don't have any way to actually test it because I don't have uh, probably the equipment I would need or if it's even possible. But one of my thoughts was this. So you know how 
like uh, like Pavel says, there is the skill element of yeah. strength training, right? And by doing it more frequently, the idea is that the skill will improve, right? Yeah. But if we're trying to do something with maximal like strength, maximal power, intention, right? Mm -hmm. Then what we're trying to do there, I believe, what a lot of coaches are trying to do is make sure that the per the athlete's muscles are firing, like all the modians are firing all at one time to get the highest vertical jump, for example, right? Are all at once in, in a proper sequence, so you get the strongest bench press, etc. Well, maybe. I okay. mean, motor control is not so much just about maximal contractile ability. It's mm -hmm. about sequencing, timing, rate coding, some of these other neurological things yeah. specific to the coordination, the motor control of a specific movement pattern. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you'll have the muscle synchronization, intramuscular, uh, or the rate coding. Yes. Like making sure that each muscle group is firing at the right time and each motor unit is firing at the right time in the each muscle. Yeah. But my question there at that point becomes, can I do that as well as I want to do if I continually practice it too much? So this is kind of a, a basic example, but let's say I'm working on bench press, right? And I'm teaching my body how to fire the motor units in my pecs, in my shoulders, in my triceps, all together, how they synchronize at the same time and fire at the, the right times, blah, 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 right? Yeah. Now, if I do that three times a week, maybe I get better at recruiting them a certain way to perform that action. But if I never give myself time to, to rest enough where I can recruit the amount I might need to fire to do like 200 pounds. My question is, do we do those things learn how to do that? Like, do you, does your body learn how to fire those motor units in the right order with the right synchronization to do 200 pounds at that point? So if you constantly are doing like, you know, lower intensity, maybe you get better at it in that sense where you're good at firing it off like low intensity, but you might not get better at doing it at the higher intensities because you're constantly fatigued and some of the motor units are not able to be recruited. Mm -hmm. Now, once again, I don't know for sure, which is why it's just something that's like a thought in my head, yeah. but I stick more so to what can I do and then test right afterwards. So going back to previous things, like for example, one of the other days, I wanted to see how many chin-ups I could do in a row unbroken. So I only train, you know, our big five exercises um, with a little bit of mobility work if I'm doing a test there and uh, some sprints and sometimes power cleans. And then I was doing the chin-ups. I was like, okay, let me test this, see how many I can get. I ended up getting 24 reps without ever basically going above five reps in my workout. Yep. I haven't gone above five reps in years. So I'm like, at that point, it's like, okay, well, I don't know if my theory about the motor units is correct or not, but I am seeing transfer from my heavy strength work to my higher rep work. So I'm pretty happy with that. So if the answer is basically, I don't know, but if I can see transfer, I'm happy with that. Yeah. So I guess my, my perspective on this is as somebody who wants to pursue a very high impact sport mm -hmm. at a high volume, mm -hmm. right? And so there's a question about how much can uh, like a high intensity, low volume, low frequency model 
produce the robustness to the type of training that I want. Like I used mm -hmm. to train gymnasts. Mm -hmm. So um, I was a gymnastics coach first and we worked with team level boys, right? I was assistant coaching the guys. And the, the basic warm-up sequence that they, we would do for these boys would be, um, they'd run around the gym like five times. And then they'd climb the rope, right? 15-foot rope climb. And then they'd do a minute handstand. And then they'd do like, I can't remember, but probably like 50 hollow body rocks, 50 arch body rocks, you know, 10, uh, 15 push-ups, 10 chin-ups. And they'd repeat that like five times. Mm -hmm. And that was their warm-up. That was what they did to prepare for their three hours of skill work. Mm -hmm. And at some, some point they'd have specific strength work for, for this. And what I always thought about that was like a lot of it looks pretty inefficient um, later. But what was interesting to me about that was the idea that you couldn't really fatigue these athletes. Mm -hmm. Like they were, they were essentially invulnerable to fatigue. They could handle as much volume as you wanted to throw at them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I run into in my own training uh, is the feeling that like, ah, that, that next level of skill gain requires me to put in more practice mm -hmm. than my body can handle without starting to get, get worn out. So there's this classic idea of efficiency redundancy trade-offs, right? You familiar with efficiency redundancy? No, if you've got a car. Okay, so yeah, real simple. Um, let's say that I, um, I own a company manufacturing mugs, okay? okay? So I have a supplier in China and a supplier in, uh, in Peru and a supplier in India, okay? okay? Now, the price varies across all of these, mm -hmm. but uh, consistently my Chinese supplier is coming in under, right? When I mm -hmm. average it out over a long period of time. And so I'm like, well, it's inefficient for me to be getting, uh, to be, to be buying from all three sources. Mm -hmm. So I just like, okay, I, I kill my contract with the, the supplier in China or the supplier in, mm -hmm. in, um, in Peru and the supplier in India. So now I've increased my efficiency, mm -hmm. but I've reduced redundancy, which means that if there's a problem, yeah, if there's a big volatility event, yeah. um, then I, my, my system's not anti-fragile. Got it. And so I'm just curious about this, this um, to like if we if we pursue optimization and we pursue uh, efficiency too much, we run into a problem where like, okay, so so these five things give us 80% of the gains, but there's a there's a potential for a catastrophic failure or less redundancy is built into the system, and and I'm just curious what your what your what are your observations about that? You've worked with lots of athletes now who've been through your system versus other people's systems. So I am curious what your, what your thought is on that. No, that's the thing. I, I, I love that question because I think for athletes, this might work really, really, really well. So me personally, just my personal experience, uh, I've been doing martial arts since I was 13. So about 16 years now. Okay. And so I've, been, over that time, I've been doing martial arts while I was training the whole eight hours a day thing. And I've been doing it while I've been training with the big five that we do. Mm -hmm. And what I'm noticing now is that I have way more time to work on my skills, like my actual martial arts skills, while still being able to make the games that I want. So instead of having to train three times a week or four times, or even back when I was training six times a week, I'm able to do it like once, less than once a week actually. And on all the other days, 
I'm able to be working on martial arts. So back before, Martina and I would focus a lot on like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as our main uh, martial art time. But now with so much less training that we have to worry about for strength and conditioning and mobility, et cetera, we have a lot more time to spend on the skills. So at this point now, we're working on uh, boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling, we're doing some judo and sambo and, and BDJ at the same time. We have a lot more time to put into those things as well. Uh, and the, the main thing we try to do is just alternate them. So, you know, one day a week we'll do the strength training and then on the other, you know, we'll do really hard strength training. And on the other days we're working on our skills, 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 skills. Once we're recovered, we'll do another strength training day really hard and then we'll go back to the skill training in the martial arts. And I think that gives you actually more time to even work on your, your skills, whatever they may be, sure. compared to doing it if you had to also factor in doing four days a week of strength training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's only so much total training load that you can, you can take on. Absolutely. Uh, this is one thing that I noticed with, uh, in the parkour community when we first started was uh, like the first kind of, I guess there were two, two big sources of, of strength conditioning information that came into the parkour community in the, uh, in the United States, which was like T Nation and then kind of, kind of very specifically West Side Barbell came mm -hmm. uh, one kind of uh, space and then there was a CrossFit space and then a lot of us got to, into Ripito through mm -hmm. CrossFit space and then some folks got into like Greg Everett and the Olympic lifts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. These are kind of your, your vectors. So I was, uh, I was one of the guys who, who had an early interest in CrossFit, um, mm -hmm. like their, their ideas around a model of fitness, worked with some CrossFits. And so I went down the Ripito road, right? Mm -hmm. So that's three, three days a week, right? Three sets of five on squat, deadlift, bench press or overhead press, right? And a gallon of milk a day. <laughs> oh, yes. I never did the gallon of milk a day thing because I'm huge for parkour anyways, right? Like, <laughs> as a 200-pound-plus athlete getting bigger was not going to be Not a good idea. But I took some skinny, weak people and turned mm -hmm. them into very strong and powerful people using that method. Okay. But, it, but, like, past, like, if I wasn't working with someone who's, like, a 19-year-old male with low stress who was working through novice gains, it became very obvious that like three days a week of, of maximally neural recruiting, heavy weightlifting um, was just not sustainable on top of parkour practice. Yeah. Right. So I eventually like for a long time, most of my strength training when I do it is one set once a week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, only recently have I added in the, uh, the accommodating resistance, which has mm -hmm. been really cool. Um, so, so I think it's something that, that people really underestimate is like, what are all the other demands and not just what are all the yeah. other demands in your physical practice, but like, what's your stress level? Like, yes, yes. We were talking I, about, sorry, um, oh. we were talking about all the evidence-based research. We're talking about stuff that's almost all done on college male, uh, mm -hmm. college age men. Yeah. So anyways, go, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm curious. I was going to say, like, so I, I think I would find that to be almost even more important. So even much less, right? Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. you know that basically like when you do martial arts you're basically able to as long as you and your partner are compliant you guys can basically modify the intensity of each session to a certain level yeah. i think like if i was going to do something like parkour especially it's like it's kind of almost probably even more important than in martial arts in a way to be like have some recovery left in the tank so personally basically what i'm thinking is i wouldn't want to do a front flip after having just done like five by five front squats the day before i'm pretty sure if i did that there might be like me melting to the floor just collapsing to a pile of bones you know or like back when i used to do um bouldering i would climb and if i had just done like a hardcore strength session and then go to do a hardcore climb session it's kind of like oh the, the elbows aren't feeling good the shoulders aren't feeling good i had one of my worst injuries on the wall at that point i was uh training bent arm straight arm legs that same split that you know got popularized in the movement culture and then i was climbing a hole and it, it was a hole i didn't really do anything wrong i don't think but i pulled to do a heel hook and bring my foot up and i just hear like five shots go off in my shoulder and I was like, what was that? So I come down and then I can't bring my shoulder like up anymore. Like I have to like bring it out, up and around to raise my arm. And it was the weirdest thing ever. And then um, that's when I was doing like, you know, all my prehab, all my stuff. So it's like, I should be injury proof. What, what's up with this? And looking back on it, it's like, oh, I wonder if I just overtrained and combined that with the bouldering and then, you know, do my shoulder around at that point where it's like, I wonder if I've been doing something like, you know, big five there with a lot more rest and recovery and then been bouldering, had I, would I've been able to stay a little bit away from the injury. So that's what I think kind of is one of the benefits here. You can take the big five and do it once a week or even less. Like I've gotten gains from it as low as once every 14 days um, and seen like I improved session to session. So it's like that might allow someone who's an athlete to have even more time, especially if your sport involves like a certain intensity level that you can't lower down, but you can't really lower down a front flip onto the ground. So you're like maybe on trampoline, maybe you could do it that way. No, but I think it will give you a little bit more leeway to recover for your actual movement art, as opposed to being having to train two times a week and the possibility of being a little bit reduced and not recovered for the next session that you're going to do of your skill. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely my experience is that uh, you can't you can't do three days of, of, uh, of strength training and have a high quality parkour experience when you are past intermediate or past novice at either of them, right? It's, mm -hmm. You're going to break down. Um, unless you're like, I, I know some parkour athletes who are doing it, who are really high level athletes who are doing four days of strength training and, you know, skill training every day. Uh, mm -hmm. but they're, you know, it's their full-time job. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. They're, they're young, right? Under 25, basically. Um, hormonally optimized and not, <laughs> not doing anything else with their lives. Of course. Yeah. Just sleep, eat and train. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's a one one thing that, that that pops into my mind here is this idea of like the high low versus like kind of what you guys are doing is just high, but in some sense you're getting low in your martial arts training. Mm -hmm. like, how often do you grapple? Um, so I used to before the gym got uh, closed down for COVID. 
I, it used to be once a week I would, I would grapple. Okay. Um, cause I, I taught that class at that gym. So okay. during that time I would get to grapple too, but yeah, once a week and once a week, sorry, once a week with other people. Mm-hmm. And then I would grapple with Martina, but we mostly stuck to flow rolling and drilling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you grapple, how many, how many rounds and how long are the rounds you're working with? So usually during the class, we would, the class is about an hour. So we would spend oftentimes about three rounds of five to six minutes. Okay. So about 15 minutes of, of rolling. Yeah. And uh, were you sparring in your boxing and uh, Muay Thai as well? Yeah, every now and then, but that class was like at 8.30 at night, and I sometimes didn't feel like staying up that late. late. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of old. I go to bed early, like 9 o'clock. But um, every now and then I would do boxing too. Okay. So you're basically like doing uh, pretty moderate intensity cardio uh, yeah. a lot of stamina work yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's pretty much it it's, just, it's pretty like there's some high intensity work and then every now and then there'll be like, some moderate intensity because i'd be doing the the grappling and like at that point and i'd be grappling people who kind of like were just coming to the gym they're going to grapple their own speed so i have to kind of just match them and then a lot of light intensity work with martina you know we'll grapple and we'll kind of flow and we're working on new things and trying to always implement those new ones into those skills. So like, you know, I'm working with my judo skills on her and I'm still like, you know, a white belt in judo. So it's like, I have to go slow enough to make sure I can actually see the move happening and be like, oh, there it is. Okay, let me try to get that to work better as opposed to normal. Like, you know, if I was gonna wrestle, we could wrestle at a higher intensity, but if I have to use my judo skills, it can't go as fast, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in the track and field world, right, you have short to long training and long to short training. And then obviously if you have just short sprinters, a lot of them just don't do, do very minimal long training, right? Mm-hmm. I worked with a, uh, a track and field coach here in, in, uh, in Seattle, Mike Cunliffe. His daughter, Hannah, was six-time national champion, um, age group champion. Um, uh, his son went on to play for Arizona State University as a basketball player. Um, he was like a 27 foot long jumper. So, you know, we had, we had some impressive things. Uh, the guy that I, one of the guys we were training with Tatum Taylor ran a 10:33 that year as a 16 year old. Nice. Uh, which I think was like fourth fastest in the nation as age group. Mm-hmm. So fast. But one th- the thing that was interesting about that was that like their whole philosophy was basically, if you're not, if you're not 95% of your peak speed, you're not training speed. And so you just need to rest more. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, he had his athletes weight lift, do Olympic lifts in the AM, and then they'd sprint in the PM. But they usually only train twice or three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the training session was 95% goofing off and mm-hmm. chilling with your friends. <laughs> but, like, it was ridiculous. Like, I mean, he's just on his phone, like he's tra- he's doing day trading and like buying gold and shit. Um, and then he'd be like, okay, time to go. But mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. For every, the, the basic rule was for every 10 yards you sprint, you have to rest for um, a minute, right? Okay. okay. So if you do a 100 meter sprint, that means you have a 10 minute rest period before you're allowed to sprint again. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the minimum. Sometimes it would be longer than that. Longer, yeah. If, they're, if you're doing uh, a speed endurance phase, you might shorten it down a little bit, maybe eight, maybe seven minutes. Um, and if you're really on a max velocity phase, you might go even longer, like 15 minutes, right? So you can, you know, like in a, in a two hour session of training, 
you know, the amount of volume you do is so low. It's 350 yards, 400 yards. Obviously, extremely successful. But then we look at like Clyde Hart. Clyde Hart trained Michael Johnson and Jeremy Warner, who are some of the most successful, many other super successful sprinters. And he always started with, with, with basically cross-country running. Mm. Prepared all his sprinters by doing that. But the big thing was that, and this is true of middle distance runners and, and successful long distance runners, their easy work is incredibly easy. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And their, their hard work is extremely intense. Yes. Uh, which is funny because like, I feel like the message of early CrossFit was exactly the opposite. Right? If you, if you train the glycolytic pathway, you're going to get gains in phosphagen. You're going to get gains, uh, in the, uh, in the aerobic pathway, which is based on that Tabata study. Yeah. The Tabata study shows the gains tail off after about eight weeks. Yeah. I read that one. I found that interesting after I read that. And then, um, and now I know a lot of guys who prepare athletes for the CrossFit Games and what they end up doing is high-low, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. They only train those like three, five-minute or 10-minute moderate-intensity wads mm -hmm. in preparation for the Games. All the rest of the time is spent accumulating volume at very low intensity and doing super maximal heavyweight training, yeah. gymnastic strength training, and mm -hmm. sprinting. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, I'm, my, my, I'm kind of leaning towards for parkour athletes, we need some level of volume in order to, to build that up. I think that the most efficient way to get that volume is when you can do it within the sport. Mm -hmm. As you talked about with, you know, you're actually doing that work in your, in your grappling. Mm -hmm. the, the problem is that it can be harder to create the, the specificity of the adaption that you're wanting, or it's easier to get a pattern overload and a breakdown, right? So if I do aerobic parkour, um, it might be a lot harder on my body than doing something yeah. else yeah. that can be ancillary and aerobic. Mm -hmm. so here's what you're, how you would think about that approach and how we can build tunnels to volume. Because part of your story is that you, you put in huge, huge amounts of volume. You're like that, those gymnasts that I trained, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you've <laughs> adopted this low volume approach afterwards. But to what mm -hmm. degree does that training history give you a buffer for taking on all that martial arts training that you do? Mm, that's a great question. It's funny because I've been thinking about that for a long time with those exact, um, like with the CrossFit or like, uh, I think Charlie Francis, he has like a, that kind of model too, like very high and low. So I think with certain activities, it, they lend themselves over to that very easily. So like, like I said, with uh, something like martial arts, you and your partner can basically set the pace of the session and that's great because now you can do your hard training and then have lots of training in between where it's softer uh until you recover again ready for some more hard training and that hard training could be like hard sparring or it could be like you no know, strength training whatever you want to do hard uh conditioning etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you can have a recovery in between so then i was thinking for other movement arts and sports, it's like, how can I find ways to get the volume of the, of the movements that I want, but while making sure that I keep it at a level that you can recover from? So I had one guy who were brainstorming about bouldering because he, he climbs. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay, something we could try here maybe would be doing something like the hard strength training 
And then on those hard days, find out like, you know, on the routes, like whatever the hardest route you do, let's say he's climbing V8 out of like V10. So V0, one, two, three, all the way to eight, eight might be his hardest level. And then find out what part, what hold on the wall is limiting you there. So like what hold, like, oh, it's like, oh, this little one pin strip right here. That's what's limiting me on that, on that route. And I said, okay, why don't we do this? Try doing on your big five day, the finisher for your workout, grab that hold there and try to do either like rows on that hold or maybe working up towards a hang or eventually working up towards a pull up instead of just kind of treat it like strength work. Mm -hmm. And then on the other days, work at a level where you're really, really, really just trying to perfect that technique and get the volume in for the skill acquisition. And then what that might do is allow you to get one on the strength day, more solid practice on the hold. Because you know, if you're working that V8, you climb, 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 you get to that hold, you're like, oh crap, I'm already tired. Now I'm holding here, it's like, ah, uh, I fall off. So it's like, okay, we'll handle that problem. We'll have you already on that hold at the end of the session, doing rows or pulls or whatever you're doing on that hold there. On the other days, with the skill acquisition, you're still getting your reps and your volume in in your skill acquisition, but you're also getting enough recovery so that when you get towards the hard days again, you're ready to go. What I'm hoping with that is that when he goes back to doing that V8 later, his technique is better, and he's also got more strength for that limiting factor, which is that one hold there. And I was thinking of ways to do that in just about any sport possible. So like in gymnastics, for example, you might do some of your tumbling on the ground, and especially since it's like, you know, it's a little bit hard, but harder landing. And then some of the tumbling might be done on a trampoline so you can get your reps in, but without having to worry about the massive impact, absorption, and going back and, you know, uh, overworking your legs. And so I was thinking that might be something that could work for parkour, but I'm not a, uh, a parkour athlete or a tracer. Is that how you pronounce it? People say tracer. Tracer is the, is, it's a, there's a weird history with that. I prefer okay. to say parkour athlete. Parkour athlete. We'll go with that then. Answer that another time. <laughs> it is something people call parkour athletes. Okay. So uh, I'm not a parkour athlete, so I don't know if there is a way to bring it to the point where you could work on that. I do remember you and Eric, I think you said that, like, you know, you do the big five, but sometimes if you're so sore afterwards that it's like, ooh, it's kind of hard to get the volume in the next day. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, two things that could work for that, for example, one might be to do the big five less frequently, mm -hmm. but then another one might be like, okay, let's say you do the big five on Monday. Tuesday might be something a little bit less intense, like maybe rolling, like rolling skills, falling skills, et cetera. Um, whatever's less intense. And then Wednesday, the intensity might start to come up, maybe dive rolls. I'm just kind of going based on what I know. And then Thursday might be like front flips again, where you might have gotten a little bit of recovery. You're ready to do that kind of stuff. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then whenever you're ready to do a big five again, you can that way. Mm -hmm. But basically just finding a way in every skill to get your volume in at the intensity. And I think every movement art you find oftentimes has a way to do that in some way, shape, or form. Boxing has light sparring. Gymnastics has, you know, trampolines. Uh, rock climbing has different levels, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. You go, go to, you know, if you climb V8, you can go climb V4, mm -hmm. V5, and mm -hmm. just put a ton of volume in. And traditionally, yeah. many many rock climbers have adopted that as a strategy that oh, nice. builds up a, 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 um, a set of capacities that are valuable to them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think with parkour, you 
we kind of, I think we need to have a kind of rate of perceived exertion model yeah. that we mm -hmm. need to apply to it mm -hmm. combined with um, some sort of alternation of effort. So yeah. I think of like, if I do like one thing that I'll do is say uh, vaults mixed with like, uh, you know, I, I call it flow work where it's, it's really about the connection between the different movements rather than the size or amplitude of the movements. Yeah. And that's very easy on my body relatively. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, if I'm working on something like a, a Kong that has a, like, that is maximally far to me to, for me to dive in or to try to travel out of, um, that's going to take a lot out of me. Or anything yeah. that involves transitioning down from heights where you're taking impacts. Like the eccentric loads in parkour are incredibly mm. high, and that mm. costs the body. So yeah, those are those are some those are some fun ideas for for how people can can manipulate that high low. What I've been doing recently, interestingly, is um, are you familiar with Paul Check? Yes. Okay, so Paul Check has this idea of working in, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is that some some ways of some physical activities uh, help that body get energized and aroused, but without resulting in any significant fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other ones working out, you're, you're gonna be depleting your resources. So it's like yeah. you can actually pull resources into the body to some degree. Um, and I think you do this uh, with your walking, right? You're being mm -hmm. taking a very relaxed walk. Yeah. Um, so his, his um, if I remember correctly, his three things are, if you're, if you're working out or working in, you won't break a sweat, your mouth won't dry out, and you could do it with a full belly. <laughs> I love that. Right? Yeah. So like my daily routine in the morning now is to put 60 pounds on my weight sled and walk backwards with it for mm -hmm. 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's very specifically to build up my knees. But the weight that I put on it is, is limited by the sense that I'm not, it's, it's, it's a walk, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not heavy at all for me. Um, and that seems to have been really, really useful for just feeling like, honestly, like I've got some, some, some tissue turnover, got some blood moving through and specifically building up the local tissues in my knee. Another thing, well, okay, maybe, uh, well, actually, let me just add this, which is, uh, I've run into the work of Dr. Michael Yeses recently. Are you familiar with yes, uh, Dr. Yeses? Yeah, very vaguely. I just heard him, um, off a YouTube video, but I just, I yeah, recently. He's another guy who went really deep into all the Russian literature and brought that here. One thing that he emphasizes a lot is the value of, of single joint movements. So he has a program called the one by 20 program. Okay. So interestingly, again, we're going one set rather than a three, five, whatever. Yeah. Set. Mm -hmm. um, but he uses single joint movements mostly. Mm -hmm. um, and his argument for single joint movements is basically that they don't tax the nervous system. So you get more volume in and you get better local adaptions. And now you can essentially increase the strength of the, of the, of the specific local tissues that you need. Um, of course, you know, you and I came up relatively similar time in the functional fitness uh, world. Yeah. Anything single joint is evil. <laughs> you know, uh, not functional. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not functional. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think there there might be some role for this in for an athlete in being able to address a problem area, a weak link. Um, I don't really like the idea of just like trying to address every link in the chain from the start. 
that's not a very smart minimalist approach. Yeah. But, but being able to address specific weak links without creating too much systematic fatigue. So anyways, I'm, I'm curious to hear your, your, if you've experimented with that, what your thoughts are on that. I, I do something similar to what you do with the walking with the weight. Yeah. So typically I'll wake up in the morning no, I'll drink some coffee, do some reading. And then um, I usually do like around 30 to, sorry, 20 to 30 minutes of shadow boxing okay. outside. But then my rule for my shadow boxing basically is that while I'm doing it, I have to just keep breathing through my nose. If my mouth has to start opening to like, uh, to, to breathe, so it's just my breathing. Or if I start like, you know, burning, like I can't continue, I just bring it back down, tone the pace down. And I, I try to keep it nice and light. So it feels very, afterwards, after I finish it, I feel usually very restored, like ready to go out the rest of the day yeah. compared to before when I was doing some, you know, I had a daily cardio experiment where we basically did like 90 minutes of aerobic work every single day for aerobic work. Yeah. What, what, come again? what kind, like what, like what were, oh, what were your heart rates? It was a cardiac output experiment. It was 130 to 150 beats per minute. Okay, so right in that kind of max aerobic fitness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did that for seven days a week, uh, 60 to 90 minutes a day for eight weeks straight. <laughs> it was a protocol we found. Yeah, um, yeah that, that one, I definitely felt pretty fatigued after each one. But with the shadow boxing I do in the morning, I feel great. Afterwards, I feel recovered. Feel, like if I woke up really sore that morning, I feel pretty good. So I tend to go off that. And if I can, I try to do it oftentimes in the sun. So I'm getting some of my sun exposure and activity as well there for the circadian rhythm benefits. Um, so I do something similar basically to what you're saying. Uh, with the the one set of 20, it sounds very similar. It sounds like you're just basically waking up and doing some activity, uh, getting the blood flow and everything, but not doing it so intensely that you are basically gassing yourself out and fatiguing yourself for the rest of the day, which is where I think a lot of people mess up. Like I, I see sometimes people doing like a recovery workouts, but these workouts will be like four sets of like eight to 10 weighted chin-ups and like, you no know, presses and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you just want to train again and you're calling it a recovery workout so you can train. And so I try to make sure I just go by that rule where it's only nasal breathing, no burning, feels good uh, as opposed, and I say feel restored afterwards, as opposed to if I leave it afterwards, I'm like, oh man, I'm so tired. Then it's like, oh, I went too hard. I know I went too hard at that point. I think this is really key to the whole conversation that they're having, right? Because, right, if I, if I have a criticism of you, it's that efficiency redundancy. Training, mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like, well, maybe there's these other things that we need to be able to add in on top of like our big five high intensity stuff. Mm -hmm. And and the, the flip side to that is, yeah, I've added all the other things in and it broke me down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and I've seen consistently that, 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 that like, Oh, if I add something, right. The, 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 the default, in our physical culture is if there's a problem, what do I add? And, and this is the same thing for me. I, I think most of the injuries that I've had and most mm -hmm. of the injuries that most of the athletes that I know have had are overuse injuries. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I, sorry, wait, I, I tore my Achilles tendon in oh. 2010. Oh, right. Huh? And like you can decang a car off an Achilles tendon. Mm 
right? Like, like they're like you can do twelve times body weight on a, on a healthy Achilles tendon. Yeah. The reason is that I was tra- I went from training six hours a week to training twenty hours a week. Ooh, yeah. And yeah. like I knew that I was broke down. I knew that my tissues were 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 messed up. I just didn't know that that tissue was that messed up. Yeah. And I've yeah. seen it happen to almost a- lots of guys in the parkour community have torn their Achilles tendon, and almost always it's like something mm-hmm. like ah yeah I just increased a lot increased my training volume really rapidly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this idea of like how do we how do we better communicate to 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 ourselves and then to our our trainees that that uh that there's a dose at which this stuff is poisonous yes and you're much better to err on the side of minimal effective dose yes that's that's one of the key parts of our message lately it's risk management so we don't know exactly where that dose is but as you go higher and higher and higher you might find out where that dose is and you might find out in the way that you don't want to find out which is basically you blow up and you're injured where you can't train anymore. So I don't know what's optimal. I don't know where that dose is, but I know if I overshoot it and I get injured, I'm going to find out what's definitely suboptimal, which will be basically not being able to train. I I don't want to find that out. So instead, it's like, let's try the minimal effective dose and see where that moves us up and keeps us away from a blow up instead of trying to find the optimal dose and overshooting it and then going really far backwards. And I think uh, something important is like, you know, people sometimes miss the, where they might be getting some extra dosage that they're not currently aware of. Like uh, if you're doing single leg squats, for example, if you're lowering down in like five seconds, that's a certain dosage on that. But if you drop it like it's hot to the bottom, gravity plus your body weight, might create a higher dosage uh, and that might overshoot you and then take it a step further like you know with the crossfit thing doing box jumps and then there's a difference between doing a box jump and then stepping down off the box doing a box jump and then jumping down off the box and it's like seeing a lot of people snap their achilles off that too and it's like the dosage yeah. I'm, sure, gonna be- yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've been around the, this community enough that you've been like you've that somebody has alerted you to the fact that if you go to uh the crossfit main site on a day when they've uh when they've put a high dose of of box jumps in you can (laughs) open up the comment section and see like 50 people talking about tearing their achilles tendon oh goodness i've not seen this oh yeah i saw one day that i think that 112 people reported tearing their achilles tendon oh my goodness main site like just in just the message the message thread under the workout Oh. Or um, overhead presses, right? Uh-huh. Like everybody's got numbness in their hands after high dose overhead presses. Oh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. It's like they they have to factor in that volume and where that volume might sometimes be a little bit less, like obvious. Like you know, whenever you do a landing, like that might be extra volume based on how far you fell what angle you fell at, especially since, you know, a lot of people, when they do box jumps, they kind of step down, their head's kind of forward, and they're yeah. kind of falling in a stretch almost. Like, it's a weird position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So if, if people aren't familiar with this minimal effective dose concept, it's it's really interesting, to I think, to look at some of these dose response curves and realize that they're actually really different between different medicines as well, and they might be very different between different 
physical activities, right? So you can imagine that, you know, there's a, there's a point at which like you could go and you know, say do a bench press and you put a 30, you know, take a 45 pound bar and you do 10 reps and you put it down. You're not going to get stronger, right? That's below some threshold. So you can increase the, increase the, the intensity of the training or the volume of the training, et cetera, to a certain point. And then you're going to reach a point where you get, you know, what you might call a physiological inroad and the body adapts. Now you can then go to a deeper physiological inroad and you might get a superior adaption and get more, um, more from training session to training session. But as you move generally with most things, as you move up from the minimal effective dose, you get less new value for every new unit of intensity that you add until you start reaching the other side where it's actually damaging. Yeah. So um, to take the bench press example, so maybe I do one set of, of 225 pounds and you know, I'm gonna get 1% stronger between now and the next time. Um, and then I could go two sets and maybe I get one and a half percent stronger, right? Um, so I've gone from 1% increase in, in strength to one and a half percent. Then I can do three sets and I get, right, 1.6% stronger. So now I'm only getting a 10th as much value per set uh, as I started with. But then if I go to four sets, I'm actually a percent weaker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Exactly. Or with volatility, right, maybe at four sets, you're 1.7% stronger at, on 95% of your workouts, but 5% of your workouts result in a catastrophic injury that makes you really weak, <laughs> right? Pain brain, yep. Uh, so that, that's why it's really important to understand that. And the, the other thing is that like, there's some like, you know, physiology is probably not as variable, but if you look at, if you look at drugs, there's some drugs that like, you can double the dose, triple the dose, quadruple the dose, and you just get an additive effect, right? And there's almost no toxicity level that you can reach. Like, um, I, do, like I think it's almost impossible to, to hurt yourself with marijuana. Mm. Like, you might have a bad trip. Yeah. But you're not going to be toxic, right? No. Whereas alcohol will kill you. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. Alcohol poison. Um, so there, so that threshold is going to be potentially different from different types of activities. Um, box jumps. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually a general principle of plyometrics. This is something yeah. that Lachansky said, right? Uh -huh. He said with the shock method, the the gap between the minimal effective dose and the damaging dose is very small. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the reasons why he didn't. And many great strength and conditioning coaches have not advocated shock method training for anyone except advanced trainees. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At times that like, double body weight strength, uh, double body weight squat requirement was the first thing for a lot of those guys. Yeah. That's, that's kind of uh, I think that's a little bit of a, uh, of like a, a bro science myth that's been passed yeah. around. Um, so but, with the, the, the requirement or like the, that they a specific that. requirement. Yeah, clear, yeah. But uh, because if you look at like if you're if you're training triple jump athletes who are you know or high jump athletes who are you know uh, six foot five and weigh 145 pounds. Yeah, they're like, never squatting double body weight. <laughs> I figured it was probably made by some coach who was just tired of people like going 
doing plyometrics like when they were like, hey, I just want to start training. Can I do plyos? And they're, they're like, he's like, no, not until you get squat double body weight. Go away. It's more, I think, about understanding your body enough and maybe being out of the stupidity of harder is better. Yeah, yeah. Or you're uh, given a pass to go play with shock, shock method. <laughs> I love that. Have you, um, have, you, have you played with shock method at all? Have you played with plyometrics at all? Yeah, back in uh, when I was younger, I did um, this routine called the Bulgarian routine. I don't know if it's actually Bulgarian, mm-hmm. but it was like you would do something like a depth jump followed by an Olympic lift, followed by like back squat, followed by like Romanian rhythm squats, something like that. Um, that was interesting. Uh, I was able to jump a lot higher, so that was pretty cool but I ditched it and looking back on it, I'm probably happy I did just switch off to something else that I was bored. Uh, I'm not sure how long those depth jumps would hold up with that level of volume that I was using in, in terms of training. Um, these days I'll do some Olympic lifting. So people consider that to be somewhat shock training. So people consider it not to be depending on how intense you are with it. And same thing with sprints. I'll do sprint training too. And some people will consider that to be shock. Some people not to, won't consider it to be shock. But that's about the limit I, I play with it for the most part. Interesting. Um, so the thing about this minimal, minimal effective dose thing, right? Like one, one of the things that, that you talk about is also this idea that like going for optimal is a fool's errand for most people. Mm-hmm. Because optimal means you're very close to the, the threshold where you're turning your adaption to a negative adaption. Um, one thing that I think is true of elite athletes is that generally in order to achieve the peak of their sport, they usually have to be right on the border of training to the point of ill health. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, the, the Pareto distribution idea, which is behind a lot of this, right? Like you, for you do 20% of the work, you get 80% of the benefits. Yeah. which is great. And you can get benefits across a lot of different things. Um, but you didn't get a hundred percent of the benefits. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you can, you know, you got to go try to squeeze out that last little juice if this is your specialty and this is what you're going to do. Yeah. But a lot of times what you're, what you're doing is you, you know, you're accumulating increasing costs. Right? Cause if, if, if you want to break the world record in the bench press, then the difference between, you know, improving by 1.5% and 1.6% per workout adds up a lot. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But that usually means that these guys are always flirting on the edge of screwing themselves over. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you think about that with the athletes that you train and, and how, like, how much of a danger is it to the average person to be looking to athletes as their model for how they should train? Yeah, I I mention that a lot. So I, I tell people like my general little joke there is don't train like you're an athlete unless they're gonna also pay you like you're an athlete. Because a lot of these guys are uh you know, they're not feeling happy after their career is over. Um, especially working in a in a gym where it's MMA fighters, like I've worked with a lot of those in person and it's like you see them like no they're they're great athletically 
in the cage and everything, but then when you see them outside the cage, it's like, oh yeah, this is broken, that's damaged, that feels like crap. I can't even walk on that leg anymore. It's like, oh my goodness. So I, I think, like, honestly, I think unless you are somebody who is going to be compensated and put food on the table for your family by being an athlete, it's like, be careful about training like you are one, unless you are literally going to get paid for it. Now, for the actual athletes themselves, it's like, mm, I, I agree because it's so iffy. Like, as you try to find that optimal level of training, maybe you do find it in today's session. Maybe you find it in tomorrow's session. Maybe you get lucky for a whole week. But I think the longer you try to ride that wave, as it keeps moving up and down, it's like you're going to possibly overdo it. And if you undershoot optimal, and you stay that you know at a level where it wasn't perfect, that's probably fine. You know, you won't kill yourself if you underdo optimal. But when you overdo it, that's where it's like you're gonna possibly get injured. And if you're an athlete, then it's the same thing. Now if you overshoot optimal, if you get injured, now you're not able to do anything at all, or maybe you can't do anything to your good capacity. So like uh Eric was telling me about one of his friends who is a high-level gymnast, and he's like, you know how we tell who's going to be one of the best ring specialists, the strongest ring specialist? We tell based on who doesn't get injured. And I was like, that's funny. So he was basically saying, like, if you get injured, not only do you lose progress that you already had, you lose the time that you would have been getting stronger, and then you lose, like, the compounding interest, basically. So, like, if I'm doing an iron cross for 10 seconds now, then next month I would have been training Iron Cross for 15 seconds. The next month maybe I would have had 20 seconds. But because I got injured, I dropped back down to five seconds, which means that now when I go back up, next month gets wasted to 10 seconds after I recover. And the next month is like 15. So it's like you're taking steps backwards and losing out on gains that you were already had during that time. And so it's like, I think it's like for athletes too, it's just such a big risk, especially if you get putting food on the table with that money, I mean, with the money they're making from the athletics, uh, then that search for optimal is like, you kind of have to do it because everyone else is doing it. But if you overshoot, it's like, bam, you can be blown up and out the game at that point, which sucks, but that's that's life of it. Yeah, I wonder how much the like actuarial table for athletic performance is limited by this constant need to be at that edge or overdosed and even the culture of, of overdosing. Like I'm 38 years old and I'm still making progress um, as an athlete. Um, and I look at like the careers of, of professional athletes and like, that's not common, right? Yeah. yeah. Most of them are, are, are like average career in the NFL is two and a half years. Uh, but like, even when you look at elite athletes, you usually see, start to see a tail off in their performance mm -hmm. by 32, 33 years old. Mm -hmm. Sometimes earlier, it's really shocking. Sometimes you'll go back and look at someone like someone's career and realize that they peaked at 24 and were yeah. snide by like 27. Mm -hmm. Which, man, that's a long, dude, I was, I was just starting. <laughs> I was 23. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Same right here. Uh, I can imagine. And like, I just wondered, you know, I wonder to what degree we're able to sustain physical excellence for much longer than we thought mm -hmm. by being smarter, not harder. Yeah, uh, exactly. I think that's, I think that same thing. It's like, 
how far, and it's like, when I was with a crystal ball, we could see into it, but it's like, how far could we have gone, or some people could have gone, had they not, like, had to ride that little narrow, that little narrow wave. Like, back when I'm, so I wrestled back in high school, and I always thought, like, you know, this is interesting. We, we spend so much time cutting weight to get down to a lower weight class, right? And then after matches, sometimes I'd ask, you know, the person I went up against, I'd be like, hey, what do you normally weigh? And he was like, oh, you know, 150, but I cut down like 135. And I'm like, I'm 150, and I cut down to 135. We could have wrestled at 150 and, you know, both like had a sandwich and then wrestled, you know what I mean? It's like, why are we doing this where we're killing ourselves when we're going to be wrestling the same people anyway? If you're like one pound above the limit, share a cut. But it's like, man, we're doing so much possible damage to our health for the sake of something that we don't have to possibly do. And maybe we all have lot more longevity if we all kind of like agreed not to do that. Yeah. 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 I really wish that there was a way to get rid of weight cutting. In, oh, same here. Same here. In MMA or in mm-hmm. combat sports. Cause it's, it's a, it's a loser. It's a losing game, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I realize I get an advantage. Everybody else realizes the same. Uh, we get, uh, they get the same advantage. And then all of a sudden what we just have is everyone paying the cost and nobody got an advantage from it anymore. <laughs> exactly. It's like an arms race. And it's like, like for us as fans of the sport, it's like um, the fights would be better if these guys were fully hydrated and like, didn't have to go through this. Like, imagine if, like imagine how much better they would fight if what they were thinking about the night before the fight was, or the night before the weigh-in was the fight. Yeah. <laughs> <Instead> of- <laughs> Not cutting weight. Right. I would love that. I, I would love to see those guys, like just everyone just kind of agree, no more weight cutting. You stay in your own weight class. I think no you one have to it. basically create some system where you like weigh athletes consistently Mm-hmm. in the lead up to it and just say yeah. you you can only be this much lighter right you yeah down. it's like if a guy walks at 215 like don't let him cut to 170 no no yes yeah, at, at the two or maybe like, no okay sorry, maybe you uh, lose some fat and whatever and maybe yeah. tap down to a five that's, that's as far as he's going like, yeah. like keep him in. you could say you know control for someone's body fat it's like a, yeah you're you're optimal somewhere between seven to twelve percent body fat yeah if you're, if you're walking around at 20% body fat, then we're letting you cut down to, to what the equivalent would be. Yes. That's it. And then mm-hmm. maybe a, a tiny bit of water weight just to, to get you in the right water cl- uh, weight class. But, weight class. Yeah. I would love that. And of course, I think that would be awesome until, like, you know, of course, somebody would find that one way to beat the test and everyone's like, oh, there it is. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everyone's yeah. doing it again. It's like, uh, or... Did did you um? Did you, if you follow MMA, do you, did you notice that when Usada came into the sport, like a lot of people <laughs> started like getting injured all of a sudden, like or like losing their performance? Oh, <laughs> PRTV tour was a was a was another thing entirely. Johnny Hendricks, right? We're just like like I'm 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 a old enough fan of MMA that I remember Pride, right? I was a Pride. Yeah. I liked Pride. I was sure that the fighters in Pride were better than the fighters in the UFC. Mm-hmm. The fighters in Pride came over and they were flabbier and <laughs> much endurance and they didn't fight as intensely. And they turned out, I mean, some of them were really good fighters, Dan Henderson, Mar- uh, Shogun Hua. But like, if you compare Shogun, the fighter in Pride versus Shogun Pride. in the UFC, it was, he was still a world-class fighter. Yeah. Glad that he was in Pride. No. 
oh, and it's like, what happened there? It's like, well, you in hear the about contracts. Uh -huh. Did you know that in the contracts, yes. uh -huh. it says we will not test for performance. <laughs> yes. Hint, hint, take those drugs. <laughs> I've heard some of them even be encouraged. They're like, yeah, you're great and all, but you look a little small. Like, <laughs> you could just get a little bit bigger. That would be really cool. And, you know, there's ways to do that. We're not going to test. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. Friend Balone, here's a, <laughs> just going to put a number on the table. <laughs> we suggest that you uh, eat clean and train hard. You know what I mean? And, and never give up. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Okay. So one thing I want to talk to you about is like, so you're, 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 you're primarily now working at, in preparing people with strength development, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's essentially what you do. Strength development. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. You get people mobile through strength development. You get mm -hmm. people. Um, but at one time you were very deeply inter interested in movement culture. Yeah. Right. So you're obviously a bit of a critic of movement culture now. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see, how, like, what is your take on what that is? And we'll start there, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, so what is your take on the movement culture as a former devotee who is no longer part of it? <laughs> no. So uh, back in the day, we were definitely, um, what's that, more involved in the movement cult, sure. <laughs> but we were uh, excommunicated after a Facebook post that uh, I believe somebody thought was about them, but it actually wasn't. And um, that, and I think making our own coaching service. Mm -hmm. But what what we found, we were into it for a while, and then at first it seemed like it was like you know the message was basically go out and try new movements it's really awesome and we really like that message like okay so we went out and we were like let's try um parkour so we went to like you no know, place called urban evolution we went to a circus school and i was learning hand balancing i got a hand balancing coach at one point we were doing martial arts obviously because we did that for a long time you know florio we did break dancing it was you know try all these different movements and then it started changing a little bit to being like don't try movements. You can't learn the movement from that. You have to learn the movement with these movement drills that we have at our seminar that you can't find other places. It's like other movement coaches miss these drills. We have them here in our seminar. And at that point, we were like, that's a little bit weird. It feels like there's a lot of vagueness going on. It's a sense of like, you know, oh, this drill here will improve your coordination. It's like, well, how? And why should I do that at, instead of going out and doing it at the actual movement place itself? You know what I mean? Like, why should I punch a tennis ball and not go to a boxing coach who's going to teach me how to punch and not get punched in the face? So, like, at the end of, like, three months, I might be more coordinated with a tennis ball. I don't know what that means. Or I can be more coordinated or and better at boxing and punch people in the face and not getting punched in the face. You know, just the, the message seemed to change and that kind of didn't sit well with us. It felt a little bit awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I tend to think about the movement culture as like there's the the, the sensu strictu, right? The strict sense, which is Edo's 
team and, and, and everyone who's involved with him and who's training directly under him. And then there's the, the, the wide sense, everyone who's kind of adopted the mindset. Yeah. I actually tend to be more critical of the wide set mm-hmm. um, because I don't actually know what Ito is personally teaching because a lot of it's behind closed doors, right? Yeah. But what I see in the, in the wide sense is um, it looks very faddish, right? It looks like there's no real theory behind why you adopt certain movements. The idea is that all movement is sort of awesome. And then you're trying to, I guess, extract some principles that allow you to be good at movement. I think of it as like, uh, it's like people are trying to, rather than learn skills, yeah, trying to build the IQ of movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing is that there's, it's really questionable whether that's a thing. Yeah, it is. Right? Like there's, I, a, I remember Ito said something about this idea of like, you know, um, there's this, there's, there's this meeting place between the, the, the dancer and the martial artist and this, and we're trying to find the, the, the thing that connects to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Like in, in, in cognitive testing, there's this idea that there is a, that there's a correlation between your ability to, to play chess and your ability to solve math problems, to solve a crossword puzzle. And that that thing, you know, is G, right? Yeah. So then the idea as well, like, would it be possible to, to train in such a way that you build the thing that, that correlates between all the tasks? Mm-hmm. But there's two problems with that. Mm-hmm. One is, we, it's not clear to what degree, if this thing exists, it actually is a prime driver of your ability to perform in that task, right? So it's like, okay, let's say that there is something that explains 10% of your skill progression in boxing, dancing, and, you know, parkour. And if you train these set of drills, you're going to get really great at that 10% of things. Mm -hmm. Would that be a good option rather than spending that time training the 90% of those three disciplines. Yeah, exactly. There's more to that, which is that in, in, in cognitive tasks, factor analysis shows that there is something that correlates. To the best of my knowledge in motor tasks, they keep finding almost zero correlation, right? Mm -hmm. There's, there's debate about this. There's definitely some level of transfer. There's near versus far transfer, et cetera. But, it doesn't look like there is anything like what we see in cognitive tasks where there seems to be some simple general factor of athleticism. So it, it's kind of like you may be, you may be shooting to uh, gain something that doesn't even exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then your theory of that somehow results in handstands, gymnastic strength and capoeira movement skills combined with like contemporary dance ground skills. Yeah. That's basically what it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I think about like a movement culture. What is a movement culture? Well, like if you do capoeira, you get a really cool game that allows you to interact with other people or you're, yeah. you're engaging with it in, um, in an alive manner. Right. Right. It's, it's open. It's an open game, uh, open yeah. skill game. You get acrobatic skills, you get strength development, you get musical skills. You actually embed it in a culture and you learn about history and folklore, music. It's like, ah, oh, that's, that's kind of an interesting movement culture. Yeah. But how much of that translates over to 
the movement culture. I, I agree. Right. I, I think the same thing where it's kind of like we're taking like it, it, I almost kind of liken it to like you know there's your food and then you have supplements that are supposed to like yeah, come yeah. From food so it's like I can eat an orange or I can take vitamin C and maybe the vitamin C is good but there might be something else in the full on orange or some other things or cofactors or mixtures that I would be missing by supplementing only with the vitamin C and ditching the orange. And I feel like a lot of the movement culture nowadays has kind of ditched the orange in favor of the vitamin C. So like one of my, um, a couple of my trainees have, but one of my trainees went to uh, a movement camp and he said there was like some interesting drills going on like one was he said that somebody was screaming at a plastic bag it's <laughs> <laughs> just like like there's a plastic bag moving everyone's like chasing after it. it's just like i don't i don't know i i would literally i would tell you this much i would rather just go find yes my capoeira instructor and work with them and then it's like, okay, I know I'm going to learn some cool capoeira kicks, some cool flips. I'm going to be learning how to play the instruments. I'm going to be hanging out with friends. And since we can't measure, we can't measure like exactly what we're gaining from these movement drills versus from the, um, like the, the whole art itself, because we can't measure every single thing that we're getting from an orange because we don't know how everything interacts just yet. At that point, it's like, let me just trust the orange. Let me trust Capoeira. And let me take, like, you know, kind of like a Lindy effect. Like, let me trust what has more Lindy and what's been around longer. And instead of taking, like, the, um, the supplement, like, vitamin C, uh, tennis ball punching drill going on there. It's, it's funny. You're... I don't know if you came up with this analogy independently, but this is an analogy I use all the time, right? Oh, is it really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's an interview I I did with Katie Bowman from 2016 or something like that. Okay. Putting the orange back together. (laughs) Is it it really an orange? It is an orange. It's literally. (laughs) I love that. I'll send it to you. You can check it out. Yeah, I love love it. The philosophy behind Evolve and Play. You you posted something like this, and I like joked said in the comment. It sounds like an endorsement of Evolve and Play. That's what I liked about it. Yes. When you said that, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I mean. Like, we like that, what you guys are doing, basically. It's like things that we would have done in human time, like, ever since the beginning. Like, I don't, so, like, I don't know. I'm going to make a new sport up right right now. I'm going to call it Tiddlywinks because that's a cool name for a sport. So, like, if you don't play Tiddlywinks and your ancestors never played that game either, so you probably aren't missing anything if you don't play my game of tiddlywinks. Maybe you are. Maybe it's actually really healthy for you to play, but you'll probably survive without it. On the other hand, like, I don't want, I don't know. Like, all my ancestors probably at one time sprinted. They probably at one time squatted. squatted. They probably at certain times had climbed and carried stuff and roughhoused and whatnot. And it's like, are there possibly benefits that I don't even know about those things yet and are there possibly detriments to not including those things that i don't know yet so you know it's like you know we we have the squat for example right and then it's like 
all right, let's pick these chairs. We'll all sit in chairs instead because squats look like, you know, really weird and they suck. And then it's like, you start to have people do that and it's like, oh, you know, everyone's getting kind of stiff or whatnot. And then you find out, oh, hey, also, uh, if you want to go to the bathroom, it's a lot easier to do it in a squat all of a sudden. Maybe that squat is also helping us with digestion and stuff like that. And it's like, wow, we would have never known. So what me and Kim were talking about before, what we love about your company is that you guys do things that have a lot of Lindy and a lot of like time testiness that have been in our human like nature for such a long time. I think if you're going to start any kind of movement practice, it's awesome to include those because it's like, great. We are getting the benefits that we've always had and we're not missing out on something that we know. We don't know the effects of it possibly yet. Like, I don't know if I lose my squat, what could happen to me? I don't know if I, if I never sprint ever again, what could happen? I don't know if I never climb ever again, what could happen? Like, or I, if I never hang, oh, I never hanged and now my shoulder has an impingement. Maybe the hanging was preventing me from getting shoulder impingements, et cetera. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, my critique of the movement culture is that uh, is that it's a infinite search space mm -hmm. with no search prioritization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. You, 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 you can sample, you have an infinite set of things that you could sample um, that might take you towards the promised land of movement. Um, but you don't have anything that prioritizes one thing over another. Yes. Right? And you can invent things like, you, or you could say it has higher transfer. Mm -hmm. How do you test that? And yeah, how do you measure that exactly? Um, and, and, and so like our big thing is basically natural movement thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective mm -hmm. gives a hierarchy system right away. Yep. Do, did this movement occur lots throughout our evolution? Then our body's probably well attuned to it and it's probably going to have lots of good effects. And if you take it away, it might have lots of negative effects. Yes. Yes, exactly. And physically, psychologically, cognitive, emotionally, they're all impacted by our movement practices. So that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, um, yeah, it seems like it's interesting that you're using literally the same analogy because it seems like you're essentially recognizing the same things that drove us to this specific approach. But that's what we love about it. Like, you know, like, yeah, I'm sure that there in, in the future, we're going to find out like, hey, people who, you know, sit in a squat have less depression because of blah 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 and it's like well the people who have been sitting in a squat this entire time because they're just like well you know it's a natural movement that we've done for such a long time they've already been engaging in that so they're already like, like oh they're great i didn't know that that's cool i don't, I don't care i've already been doing this but like you know if you're one of the people who have been like oh screw squatting i'm going to go you know punch a tennis ball and it's like you know could you have possibly missed out on something a little bit more natural obviously it's not a great example because you know you can squat and punch tennis balls but it's like did you spend your time did you prioritize your time on things that were time tested or did you go for the sexy and new thing here and possibly ditch some of the stuff that maybe you should have included first that your ancestors did all throughout time yeah the, the punching the tennis balls thing i think is a good thing to, to talk about and illustrate because i think it gets to the, the problem of when you don't have a clear hierarchy system or prioritization system or any sort of skin in the game on something, mm -hmm. how faddish stuff gets. <laughs> yes, right? yes. Yeah. Because um, I call this the problem of basically f fishing from the shallow end of the Pareto distribution. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
right? Like, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> if you're if you're an elite boxer, mm-hmm. you're gonna work a heavy bag. Yeah, right? you're gonna spar, and you're gonna do mitt work, right? But like, mm-hmm. uh, for us, the hobby is one of the best. MMA coaches in the world said, yeah. look, you don't even need mitt work. You need two things. You need to spar yeah. right, with a coach who knows how to help you develop technique and recognize your weaknesses. And you need to hit the heavy bag because you need to develop power and you can't, it's not safe to develop it in sparring. Yeah. Mitt work is fine. It's not bad. It's totally useful. But if Sugar Ray Robinson and George Foreman and Muhammad Ali and, you know, Leonard Hearns and all these guys could become the greatest boxers in history without doing the, uh, the mitt work, then you probably don't need it. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and they, they didn't do the tennis ball work either. <laughs> tennis ball work, to me, what it is, is it's like, you're 99% of the way there. And this is your entire thing. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to find a tenth of a percent edge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I see within the movement culture is, um, well, if I go spar, well, that's hard. <laughs> it's potentially dangerous. Yeah. And I'm never going to look like Sugar Ray Robinson. <laughs> no. right? I'm yeah. never look like Sugar Ray Robinson. But if Sugar Ray Robinson spends 10 minutes a day on, on tennis ball drills, mm-hmm. and I go spend 20 minutes a day on, uh, on tennis uh, ball drills, mm-hmm. I can be better than the best specialists on earth at this one tiny aspect of their game. Yes, yes. And so if I go then and I, and I go pick up this piece of boxing that doesn't matter, and this piece of parkour that doesn't matter, and this piece of capoeira that doesn't matter, then I can create this very visually attractive portfolio of movements that are selected for being as minimally relevant as possible to their mm-hmm. original context. Mm-hmm. And, Even <laughs> and that's what I think a lot of movement culture yeah. has become. Yes, yes, I agree. I'll, even better to take all those things and then you add some really vague terms, like this is going to improve the synchronization of your subtleness. And it's like, yeah, I, I feel that. I, I definitely feel, I, I notice I'm, I'm getting that. And it's like, no, me and Martina have this phrase where it's like doing the work for the person. So like, let's say that you are, have somebody selling you like this, like this tennis ball drill. And they're like, it's going to make you more subtle. And you're like, okay. I'll try it, sure. And then you do it and you go from zero to 100. And it's like, afterwards you're like, yeah, I feel how subtle my body is. And it's like, did you just, you just did the work. You just sold yourself <laughs> for them. You, they didn't have to even do it for you. It's like, we always say like, no, the people who are selling you these things should have to do one of two things. They should have to either one, define the terms. So it's like, if I say it's gonna make you more subtle, I have to describe and objectify how it's gonna make you more subtle. Or two, based it off Lindy. So it's like, look, your great, 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 great granddaddy did this all the way down to you. So you probably should too. But if they're not following that and they're being really, really vague, don't be there in the middle doing the work for them and being like, yeah, I feel more subtle. And it's like, how did you measure that though? Oh yeah. When you look yeah. at like the martial arts, like mm-hmm. Uh, the traditional martial arts, the or the what my friend Matt Thornton calls them, fantasy-based martial arts. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, maybe we have a problem with fantasy-based movement arts. Yes, uh, but but a lot of it ends up being this this place of like let's play a word game and a in a in a game where we kind of get you to convince yourself that mm-hmm. this is working for you. Yes, uh, by, by putting you in bizarre situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so the the problem with the real stuff is it's hard and it's scary. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I, I would want to ask you though, like, what do you think that you gained that was positive from that experience in the culture? What is the insight that needs to be integrated as people go forward with that? Right. Like if, if there, if that explode, let's say that it exploded for a reason. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe we, we can see the flaws now in it, but if somebody hasn't yet, figured out the lessons that were there mm -hmm. what was it that you took away from it i think what i would say i really like about it is basically that it got people moving like it sounds funny but it's like no like it's just, awesome, right? yeah yeah when crossfit came out it told people what's that weird sport where everyone's grabbing a weight and throwing it over their head weightlifting i want to try that and then we you know we find out hey that's pretty cool or what are those weird things people are working out on uh, it's those rings what's then all of a sudden doing rings becomes really popular now you can buy a pair of genetic rings for like you know 30 yeah. bucks before when they needed like, a whole rigging system and so i think what the movement culture idea started off with really nicely before it became a little bit more what it is now is the idea that people should try to include movement into their day yeah especially if like you know you're nine to fiving and then you're driving home you're sitting on the couch and watching tv it's like hey you you your ancestors once again probably moved you should probably include a little bit of that into your day as well uh the only thing is i think now instead of being like that it's turned into something where it's a little bit more uh like reverse engineering but Back. trying to put the orange back together this is my this is one of my big critiques of movement culture is the idea of I, into, isolate integrate uh or improvise right yeah, yeah yeah i think that isolation is basically applying reductionist scientific principles mm -hmm. to a dynamic systems or ecological problem mm -hmm. it, it doesn't work very well you you can't you can't understand movement by trying to break it down into all of its pieces mm-hmm mm -hmm. And uh, and you can't build it up, right? So it's like people spend all this time preparing for movement and, and playing with these isolated pieces of movement. Um, but to be honest, they're they're they can't solve movement problems. Yeah, exactly. Not not especially not movement problems that are real problems. Like, mm -hmm. okay, I can give you a kinetic koan, um, and like maybe you're kind of clever when you're in the gym on your own and there's zero consequences. Yes. Right. Yes. But does that mean that you're going to be able to solve the problem of someone trying to punch you in the head? <laughs> no. And, and the thing is like some problems matter. Mm -hmm. This was my critique of CrossFit back in the day, right? Yeah. Like the fittest athlete is the athlete who performs best across an infinite space of potential movement tasks. I was like, that's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. But doing Fran, um, it doesn't matter if you DNF, finish yeah. with the terrible time, uh -huh. a good time. Yeah, Unless you're exactly. stupid enough, like I was, to give yourself rhabdo, and it <laughs> oh, matters. Yeah, I, I gave yeah. myself rhabdo twice doing friend. Oh crap! Goodness. So, I'm I'm capable of making myself work really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, but but generally, it's like there's no there's no relevance to that task outside mm -hmm. of outside of not harming yourself with the task. <laughs> yeah, um, that ball might bounce back and hit you in the face or something like that, you know? But on the other hand, being able to fight 
has yeah. real relevance. Yeah. Right? And it has a relevance that's Lindy, right? Like yes. you probably won't have to fight, right? But lots of your ancestors did. Mm-hmm. Um, being able to run away, jump, catch, throw, yep. all those have relevance in yeah. the past. Being able to make something, yeah. right? Like movement culture, build something. Yes, yes. Those are all, those are all directly physically relevant things. And uh, it's sort of interesting how much, I mean, CrossFit and then movement culture, they didn't take us into those places where you're learning skills that actually make you a better athlete, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know I mean? like, uh, I remember they had, uh, they had a uh, softball toss at the CrossFit games. Mm-hmm. And it was pathetic. It was just <laughs> sad. Right, <laughs> these guys who were so high powered, they they have zero coordination to throw a ball. Mm-hmm. Like, it, how many ball sports are there? Why are yeah. those ball sports show up? Like, humans killed things by throwing rocks at them. Yeah, years. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, right? Like Ido once said, like all of us in this industry are eating because of of CrossFit. Mm-hmm. And CrossFit captured some really beautiful things. It captured the camaraderie of doing things together. Yep. The power and value of struggle in a culture that's way too, too, too soft on itself a lot of the time, mm-hmm. in some ways. And, uh, and having something measurable that you can compare yourself against. Like, that's all brilliant stuff yeah. that wasn't really there in our physical culture. Mm-hmm. And I think Ido, Ido brought a lot as well. Yeah, I agree. And in some sense, you, know, you and I both eat because of Ido. Exactly. Exactly. That's what. That's what I mean. So it's like for that. Yeah, of course. Like as I said, when it, when it first started off, I think it just started off so great, and then it just kind of like, you know, when weird. Like my mom always told me, she's like, she tells me this phrase. She's like, you know, McDonald's started off as a sit-down restaurant that you had to sit. Yeah, you, know, you would. It was a. It was a going out experience, and then it turned into something else later. And like, I uh, always laughed at that when she said that as when I was younger. And then later, I was like, oh, I think she meant that with like. A lot of things like you know, when they start off, they start off small, really nice, and everything. And then sometimes they grow into something a little bit different when things, when, when yes, yeah, when intentions change. Yeah, intentions change, and like the the bottom line changes. Like no, the 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 goal changes. The the idea of money, making money, and making a big empire changes. So I think when it started off, it was awesome, and then now it's a little bit different. I like these smaller movement gyms sometimes because it's like. No, it gets people off the couch. It gets them doing like you know some training, some exercise, some movement, and but they were going from zero to you now some movement. So that is oftentimes great. It's just I would love to see people prioritizing, like you said, putting things in that order. Like hey, add in the thing, these things that are Lindy, and then add in those other ones when you know if you're going to as a fun thing. Like before you start trying to punch tennis ball. Make sure you can box normally. <laughs> you throw a good punch, right? Because <laughs> yeah, exactly. punching a tennis ball will yeah. teach you how to punch poorly. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. It's like that's also another thing. It's like I see people punching tennis balls, and it's like that's not how you would punch at all. Like you're reinforcing guys, a motor pattern that is precisely contrary to the functional application of that motor pattern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did. I did Muay Thai for um. I think like 10 years or so mm-hmm. and then it was funny like I started 
doing like pure boxing because someone mentioned like no try try just doing a normal boxing like you'll see the punching is way different and when i learned to punch in boxing it was like wow that's a lot harder than even when i was learning in muay thai and so then it's like with the tennis ball drill it's like holy crap like there's it's it's totally weird compared to throwing it for real in an actual like martial art you went through you know yeah, I mean, yeah. there's going to be zero transfer unless you already have a very solid base in the skill mm. and you're going in with very clear intention about mapping the tracking aspect and the rhythm aspect to something, right? Otherwise, it's it's literally just you're isolating a piece. It's 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 the vitamin C. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't even know if you need vitamin C. <laughs> or you don't even know if it's the like a, a nutrient out of the orange it could just be some <laughs> just random volatile chemical that has something to do with an orange that has zero effect or negative effects on the body you don't know exactly it's like you're missing all the other parts of the, the fruit there the ones that are actually like possibly really really good for you and, and may, maybe the tennis ball punching will turn you into like an amazing monster athlete i don't know i, I could always be wrong right but it's like, yeah. Oh, I don't I'm think you're wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Very good reasons to suspect that that's not the case. Right? <laughs> <laughs> of course. It's like, yeah, maybe one day it's will prove me. I highly doubt it, though. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we've been, uh, I think, I think we're, uh, we're coming towards the end of, of the time we have to talk today. Uh, uh, really good to catch up with you, Phil. Um, you. Folks who want to know more about your work, who are interested in understanding more about accommodating resistance, what are the big five? I talked about that with Eric. You and I actually didn't get into that. Um, why they might want to focus on that and how to how they can, uh, you know, maybe get a lot of gains with a little bit less time involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, they can go and find us on Instagram. Uh, our handle is the underscore mindful underscore mover. Um, they can send us an email at, at mail at mindfulmover.com. And they can subscribe to our newsletter if they go to our Instagram and click the subscription link. Uh, we come out with those typically weekly and we add something um, new that we don't even put on Instagram typically. Like something like a, new, uh, a different tip each week on the newsletter. Awesome, it was really good catching up with you, man. Thank you. It's too long, we'll have to do it again. I absolutely love to. Cool. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.